Hey there, and welcome to the Punished and Played podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sean Rose. I'm joined by Jonathan Baker. Hello, everybody. And usually we have Clint Broadbent that joins us, but unfortunately he had a death in the family and was not able to make it tonight. But we have a very special guest joining us tonight. We have Emerson Matsuuchi, the designer of Spectre Ops, and he works for Nazca Games. How are you doing tonight, Emerson? Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. No problem. Thanks for being on the podcast with us. We really appreciate it. Oh, no. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for inviting me on. This is great. So usually when we start off our podcast by talking about what games we've been playing, but that kind of ties in a little bit with what we were going to be talking about tonight, which is about tabletop day experiences. Mm, okay. On April 11th, we had International Tabletop Day, and I know you got to go to California to do the main event for Tabletop Day. Is that right? Yes, yes, that's correct. It was the um, it was International Tabletop Day, the flagship event by Geek and Sundry, and it was held in Burbank, California. That's awesome. It looks like you were doing some uh, demos of Spectre Ops. Oh yes, yes. So there was um, we had two demo tables at the main event, um, and we also had Planet also had some other games uh, as well. They had the new Ashes game, which is designed by Isaac Vega, and it is. What's, what's a good way to describe it? Kind of a mix of a little bit of Courier's Dice Masters, along with like Magic the Gathering and those LCGs. So it combines a lot of unique elements to create a really, really uh, engaging experience if you like those you know, two-player head-to-head combat-style games. Yeah, that's a fun one. I actually play-tested that one, Emerson. Oh, awesome. Awesome, yeah. So I really, I really enjoyed that one. And, of course, they had uh, Dead of Winter there as well. Oh, that's a classic. In my mind, it's a classic now. So <laughs> It is. It definitely is. What was it like being out there at the flagship event? Was this your first time going out there? Oh, yeah. It was definitely my first time uh, going out there. And it was, it was a great experience. On Friday, uh, there was a bit of a surprise when uh, Isaac approached me and says, hey, we're going to be on the Geek and Sundry like, live show. And I think the, the segment uh, of the live show was called Gather Your Party. And so they invited us on, us on, and we were on the live show, and we got to present both Ashes as well as Spectrops. And we had about like 15 minutes for each of the games, so we had a good about a half hour on the on the show. And we were, um, it was live, and there was a, um, it was on Twitch TV, mm-hmm. and they had the little sidebar. Uh, so they had a large for for us, they had like a large screen that actually scrolled all of the uh, the chat comments that were coming through, so that we can kind of respond to the audience because it was it was a live show. That's awesome. And that was a that was an absolute blast. I had a had a great time. I probably looked extremely awkward because every time that they they got a new subscriber, um, they would play this music like this very upbeat music, and we'd all have to stand up and dance. <laughs> <laughs> Oh so my I'll gosh. be in the middle of like you know rules explanation, and then we'd have to pause, <laughs> and then we'd have to get up and dance. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I I didn't get to watch the the live stream of this, but I think I'm gonna have to go back and uh, <laughs> check it out now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been avoiding watching it because I think I'm gonna be overly embarrassed about my my lack of dance skills. Well, you've got to embrace embrace it in its entirety, I suppose. So. Yeah, <laughs> it was definitely it was definitely a fantastic experience. Though. Now I would love it if they invited us again next year. That's awesome. Did you get to play any any other games while you were out at Tabletop, or were you mainly focusing on uh, Spectre Ops and getting to play Ashes? Oh, um, 
Good question. I think it was um, unfortunate. I think we we were just demoing the entire time. Our tables were were very busy. Um, they brought ten copies of Spectre Ops. Two were for the demo tables, and then they put another eight in the library. And the ones in the library, uh, you know, those got checked out as well. So it, there was a lot of copies of Spectre Ops floating around. So it was, um, you know, the demo tables were just constantly being full. And, you know, as soon as, you know, one group had finished their game, got up and left, you know, another group was already waiting there. So it was, I mean, the, I believe the, you know, six or seven hours that the event was running, it seemed to have flown by in just, you know, a few bats of an eyelash. It was very it, it was just a lot of energy lots of people coming really excited about the game so i th- believe i spent the whole time just demoing specter ops well that's got to be really exciting being able to see people play your game and see their first experiences with it as well yeah yeah absolutely absolutely i really really enjoy that how about you guys what did you guys do on um on tabletop day well we we met at our lo- local game store um night night arms and we got to play lords of visit which was the mm-hmm. first time for me. Have you ever played Lords of Zidat, Emerson? No, but I'm really excited to play that. It's got that the the theme that's from Seasons. Yes. Which looks like you know it's a it's a fantastic game, and it's got one of my favorite mechanisms, which is programmed movement. <laughs> so you're programming your movement to try to recruit uh, your different units, so to speak, and then you have to go and fight the monsters. I've never played it, but I'm really excited to try it. I watched you know several videos of it, so it feels like it's my type of game. Yeah, our friend Clint, uh, he's the one that brought the game to Tabletop Day, and he's been wanting us to play it for a while. I feel like he has a back catalog of games that he's been wanting us to play. I usually really like program movement, um, mm-hmm. and when we were first starting out, like I felt like the game was just really progressing great. We felt like it was moving at a nice clip, mm-hmm. and then we started competing against the same locations. So uh. Uh, for some reason, I feel like I was channeling Clint the entire game. Everything that I wanted to do, he did it before I could. Um, <laughs> and I, I know that's an, an aspect of program movement games that you can kind of get in the way of other people. Right, right, yeah. As long as you can anticipate what your opponents do, you can usually foil them, which is one aspect that I like. So it becomes a head game. Absolutely. And we were playing with the, f- the full player count. So we had five players going at the same oh, time. So yeah, it was that's... our first time. We were trying to figure out not just what you want to do, but what other the other four people are playing the do it was very intimidating <laughs> right right a little bit chaotic but i mean it was a good kind of chaos yeah that's 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 the kind of game that i really enjoy is that player driven driven chaos there and i heard it's also got like a really interesting scoring mechanism too it does it essentially has a three-tiered system of player elimination so there's uh you are going to be scored upon uh how many are they called towers or i forget what they're towers called. yeah how many towers you have, how mm-hmm. much money you have, and also how many of the little, I think, they're liar chips that you put on for area control. Right. And so based upon the, it's set up differently each game that in terms of order, it might be that towers are scored first, then money, and then the area control will be scored. But the next game, it might be scored in a different order. So whoever's in last place in each of those categories gets eliminated from the game. And so it right. slowly eliminates people to see who's on top. Right, right. So the key is to never be the absolute lowest because you'll get eliminated at some point. Correct. And Clint completely trounced us. Oh, yeah. Took us to school. (laughs) (laughs) He had one section of the board that I called Northern Clintonia because he had so much control over that part of the board. 
Right. He's, he's got the owner's advantage because he owns the game. He has a slight <laughs> advantage in playing it. But oddly enough, he has he said he hasn't played it before. So I don't know. Maybe he just really studied up on it. Perhaps he was uh, playing us a little bit. Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think one of the biggest things that I, looking back upon it since, I really like those area control games. Uh, I think about... Space Alert, where you had that area, not the area control, but the program movement in Space mm-hmm. Alert. But that's more of a cooperative, and there's a game, and there's lots of chaos with that. And I also liked uh, Kings of Air and Steam, which kind of had the airship pick-up-and-deliver aspects. Right, right, yeah. The thing that I felt like hit a sour note for me with Zidit was that I felt like if my... Since you're programming six movements... If something goes wrong in your plan, it can completely derail everything. So I felt like there were several turns where I accomplished absolutely nothing, and there was nothing I could do to change it. Right, right, yeah. So six moves out is actually like you know a lot kind of long term planning there. Yeah, but I think there's also another part of the game that I missed is that you actually get to flip over where the next like the resources will come out on the board. They're numbered on the on the board and the chips. You'll get to see the where the next two spaces where it'll come out. Same thing with the monsters. So you can actually anticipate where the resources are going to come into play and also where the monsters are going to show up. But right. I seem to have missed that rule. And so it wasn't until towards the later third of the game that I actually realized that I was missing out on vital information that could have made the game so much more enjoyable for me. Right, right, yeah. And I think that's where the owner's advantage comes in, is that they're (laughs) most familiar with the rules. So as a new player, you're going to miss something. There might be a little bit of a, you know, piece of strategy that you'll miss out on because you're not as familiar. Yeah, what were your your experiences with it, John? Um, Well, number one, I mean, we talked about our biases on our last show, and I'm just, I have a bias against playing a game for the first time, especially when it's, you know, brought out and I haven't had a chance to look it over or read the rules or anything like that. So I was a little bit intimidated by it and I'm not terribly great at program movement. I mean, Cold Express is one I play, but that's one where you just don't take it very seriously. You know, everything is going to go crazy, but I liked it. I, it's not one that I would probably go out and buy because it's just not my style of game, but I really love the components, the artwork. Uh, It was very nicely done and it is a very good game. But yeah, I walked away from the game, even though I felt like I was a little frustrating. But I think that was, again, in part because I didn't realize that I was missing out on that important information of how to plan ahead of where things are going to come out. So I'm definitely willing to give it another shot now that I feel like I know what I'm doing. Were there any other games that we played at Tabletop Day? I know you played a game with Clint right before I got there, um, that Scribe game. Oh, the Scribe's Arena. Uh, it's It was a, a word game. It's, it's almost like you're playing Hangman, but you're using magic spells to try to deduce the other player's word. I've seen that on Kickstarter, and it looked really intriguing because it was such a, I guess, a unique combination of like Hangman with you know other mechanisms. Yeah, I had never heard of it, and Clint pulled it out, and he said that he met the guy at the Board Game Geek convention, and he sold him on it, and it was very interesting. It was it was a lot more enjoyable than I initially thought it was going to be. So it was a nice blend of those two different aspects. Yeah, it was a very, very unique combination. I was, I was kind of, you know, my interest was peaked. It was kind of intriguing. <laughs> I'd love to try it. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> And the uh, the other game we we played after Clint left, we broke into pairs and we played uh, two two games of Summon Wars that were going on side by side. So awesome! And that was my first game of actually playing Summoner Wars. I played it a lot on the iPad, but I had got some of the master sets and got the alliances master set, and I finally got to play against Jonathan. And uh, somehow I was able to use the the benders to lock him in place and. 
He trounced <laughs> my poor cave goblins. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I got. I still have to get alliances, but I feel like the once you have this, the, like the master set, you know, it's and because I play like a whole variety of games, I feel like I got a lot of life still left in my master set uh, because it's um, you know one of those games that we bring out occasionally rather than you know, um, yeah, I really love Summoner Wars, but. I know there are some people who are, you know, absolute fanatics and they, they play it every chance they they get. But um, because I'm very eclectic, I love playing all different kinds of games, and I have a bit of a cult of the new in me, where I always want to try like new games. I want to see what new stuff is out there. I think we're definitely members of that cult as well. At <laughs> least I think I am. But I think the number one thing is like I love two-player games. I just don't get to bring them out as much as I'd like, especially when you're going to a game group or something like that. So right. Yeah, that's that's also the other um, barriers that at, at the game group we always tend to like to get like the larger group games. So we always like to get three, four, five, six, seven player games out because really that's the that's the opportune time to to get it out. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So I know we had a few questions, kind of kind of curious about about your background and kind of what got you to this point. So I think Jonathan, you had a few questions, right? Yeah. Anytime we have the guests on the show, Emerson, I always like to ask him, you know, how did you first get into gaming? What, what's your background in gaming? Oh, okay. Um, I'm actually a, quite a newbie in the industry. So I designed my first, I guess, first commercial game uh, back in 2012, 2013. Yeah, 2012. And it didn't actually make it to stores until 2013. And it was a small little card game called Tricks and Treats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's sort of like my first foray into, you know, uh, tabletop gaming. Uh, my next game was the one I was a little bit more proud of because it was my first, um, I felt like a full-fledged board game. And that was Vault Robot Battle Arena. And that, was, uh, that came out around this time last year. Yeah. So I'm yeah so I'm I'm still quite very new to the industry but uh, in terms of like designing games I guess I've been doing it since I was um I would say about 10 or 11 years old when I got like really heavily into like role playing games and and board games like Risk and things like that and you know it uh, it all started from like just starting to house rule things to give it your own flavor you start to retheme your version of Risk with like other themes that you really enjoy so like you know i had gi joe figures on my risk board because <laughs> i like that theme uh, i'm sure the mechanisms were, were completely broken and at that time i wasn't really thinking about <laughs> things like game balance and, and stuff like that and my friends always wondered why i always won <laughs> <laughs> there you go it's the the uh owner's uh exactly benefit, the right? owner's yes. advantage <laughs> <Yep. right. laughs> so, so. You, you mentioned rpgs what were some of the other and risk what were some of the other early games you remember playing Oh, there was a time I really enjoyed. Um, at that time, it was called Shogun. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And I think it changed its name to like Samurai Swords, and now it's called Ikusa. Mm-hmm. So that was definitely one one uh, influential game because I, I really enjoyed that game. Uh, back, you know, I was yeah, I was around ten years old at that time. But then, you know, you had Dungeons and Dragons, and of course, like Magic: The Gathering, um, just all the big staple games. You know, I. Yeah, anything that was addiction inducing, like I seem to get sucked into it. So <laughs> that's kind of a dangerous trend. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, games have always been something I really enjoyed my whole life. Um, but it's only recently that I've you know, taken the the um, taken the steps to actually get become a part of the industry, rather than just a consumer. You mentioned trick or treat. What kind of pushed you to uh, develop that and try to get it out and get it published? 
I guess it was more like I wanted to take sort of baby steps. I I knew I wanted to get into the games industry in some capacity, and I was I didn't have the confidence to be able to like put out a, a like a big board game or something like that. So I decided, you know, I'm going to start with just a simple card game. Also, I did have the at least initially I had the ambition to you know start a game company. Um, and you know, I hopefully at some point have a like line of products. So I wanted to understand the whole process of going from the initial concept through development, and then finally production and distribution. And so I was using tricks and treats as a way to get myself very familiar with it, with the whole process from beginning to end. Uh, the I guess the barrier of entry in terms of like cost and things like that were relatively low, lower for you know a small card game. So that was the reason why I you know decided to go with like something small, something family friendly. Um, but it's it's still something I'm you know fairly proud of. That's great. What drew you to the the trick or treating theme? Oh, yeah. I had the original design for the game actually had more of a serious theme to it. Where it and in its heart, it's a just a bluffing game. Mm-hmm. So the objective in the game, well, actually, I'll explain how it works in Tricks and Treats. You have a set of numbered baskets. Mm-hmm. So the story goes is that you know you're a bunch of kids that's coming home from trick or treating, and but you're all greedy kids. <laughs> so the parents had numbered the baskets because they didn't want the kids fighting over it. So the kids aren't supposed to know which basket is theirs, but the kids are sneaky and they'll. You know, and you find out which which numbered basket is yours. Um, so you're so the goal of the game is to try to get the most candy in your own basket. <laughs> nice. Okay. The and you're when I first explained the game, you know, the the initial reaction is, well, why don't I just put every candy I get into my own basket? Mm-hmm. So the catch is, is that if another player can identify which basket is yours, they could bump you out of the game. So there's oh. a little bit of player elimination. So you couldn't just keep loading up your basket, or you could keep loading up your basket hoping no one actually calls you out on it. Very so, cool. So I guess you could do the bluffing by loading up another basket, and if someone calls you out and they're wrong about your basket, what happens then? They're then? The ones, then they're the ones that are eliminated. Nice. Very neat. So initially it had a more serious theme, I suppose, where instead of candy, they were like um, soldiers or influence in guilds, and you know, you're trying to get the most influence for your party because you know you wanted to be the one in position to take the throne or something like that but i thought you know what i i wasn't yeah at that time i wasn't very confident with with how the market would perceive it so i decided i'm going to go with something simpler because it was a very lightweight game so i figured a more lightweight theme would be more appropriate for it but i always like games that try to do a different take on a on a theme so i haven't really seen a lot of games that deal with trick or treating and things like that so i i kind of appreciate you trying a different theme on it yeah yeah, and Halloween's always my favorite time. It gives me an excuse to like cosplay horribly, and <laughs> I could say, "Well, I'm trick or treating with my kids." Yeah, absolutely. I'm sticking with it. Sounds like I'll have to use that excuse. <laughs> so, my next question is for you, Emerson. How did you? What kind of lessons did you learn from from putting out that game to putting out a bigger game in in, in Volt? Mm, uh, some of the lessons I learned were. Let's see. Understand the expectations of the market. So my first print run of Tricks and Treats, I probably had too many printed because at that time, I guess I was looking more at the cost per unit versus how much I can realistically sell. Mm -hmm. 
So that was like one of the first lessons. And I think the second lesson after, especially after um, producing Vault, is that your company's brand is extremely important. And especially so because we are sort of experiencing um, a boom in the industry, so to speak. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's, and and because of it, and I'm assuming, I think rightfully so, that Kickstarter has a large part in this and that there's lots of of little game companies that are, you know, um, you know, there's lots of people with dreams and, and I can, you know, I'm, I'm one of those that have that, that dream as well. So the, the tough part is that because there's so many of us, we're competing, you know, there's many of us competing for a knit, you know, board games are in some people's eyes still considered more of a little niche market. So there's a lot of us competing in that same market. So, you know, branding is extremely important. Getting, your name out there, getting your company's um, branding out there is really, really important. Uh, on that note, you know, where did the, the name for your company, Nazca, come from? Well, I was always fascinated by the Nazca lines in Peru. Okay. So it's, um, you know, supposedly if you're standing on the ground there, you, you can't actually see the full pattern. You'll have to, like, el- get to someplace where it's highly elevated, or you can, you know, take a, a propeller plane to fly over it to actually see the full patterns. And that always fascinated me how, you know, the, I guess, the civilization at that time that put those lines out there were able to do it without, you know, as they're building it, how do they actually see it? So that took some level of coordination. So that was one fascinating aspect of it. And then the other fascinating aspect of it was the motivation to do it in the first place. So it seems like, you know, some speculation was that they're actually trying to send a message out there. So, you know, you're trying to make a, a big message. And also those lines have lasted for, you know, many, many, many years. So, you know, I felt that that's reflective of what I want my company to represent. It's, you know, we're, we want to send a message out there. We want to get these, these games out there and have and given, you know, an experience out to a broad audience. And at the same time, we'd like it to be timeless as well. Nice. That's great. I really, I really love it whenever there's a good story behind the name. <laughs> well, thank you. So for those of you that are unfamiliar with Spectre Ops, this is a hidden movement game in which one player takes on the role of a secret agent trying to sneak through the facility of Raxon Global, while all the other players are taking on the roles of hunters whose entire purpose is to try to stop the secret agent from completing his or her missions. So the spy is keeping track of his or her movements on a gamepad, essentially. So a notebook that has the layout of the map, and they keep track of their movements on this pad. So they're trying to move across the board, but their token is not on the board until they are spotted by one of the hunters. So this is very similar to games such as Scotland Yard or Letters from Whitechapel, and it also has some similarities to the game Clue the Great Museum Caper, where in that game you're playing as a thief trying to steal paintings, and you're keeping track of your movement on a notepad. This has similarities to that, but it has a much more sci-fi theme and has special powers. So every hunter and agent has its own unique special abilities, and there are also special item cards that the agent will be equipped with to try to sneak by and complete their objectives. So once the agent completes three out of the four objectives on the board, they then have to sneak their way out of three or possibly four escape routes on the board. So this game plays from two to five players, but the game rules change slightly whenever you're playing with four or five players. 
So I, I'm pretty certain that Emerson, you're not going to remember this because I know you run a ton of demos of Spectre Ops. Mm-hmm. But we actually got to meet you at Board Game Geek Convention this last yes. year. Yeah, Man. I remember you from BGGCon. <laughs> <laughs> then I'm actually surprised you're willing to talk to us. <laughs> because I, it was Jonathan, myself, and our friend Matt. We hit Colby up, and mm-hmm. we said we wanted to try Spectre Ops, so he helped us track you down. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember that you weren't feeling well, and I'm pretty certain that we didn't make you feel any better that day. <laughs> <laughs> So Jonathan, yeah. our friend Matt, who we tried to get on here, but apparently softball was more important to him than coming on our podcast, but that's okay, we'll let it slip, Matt. And myself, we all sat down and learned the game. And then the hunters, they proceeded to overanalyze every possible location of the agent. And being the agent myself, I found this to be very stressful and a very draining experience. And I was able to complete three of the missions, mm-hmm. but it, I took too much damage trying to make it toward the exit at the end, so I ended up losing. But after the game was over, we realized that our game ran for two hours and 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. I'm yes. sorry. And when I asked you how quickly other groups have been getting through the games, you said, oh, it's been taking people about 45 minutes. <laughs> so you have my sincerest of apologies for torturing you when you weren't already feeling well with a three, nearly three-hour game of Spectre Ops. There's no need to apologize. And uh, just for the record, um, I was feeling okay, but it was the fact that I, I was losing my voice. I, I have um, a very weak voice, so like after one day of, of demoing, usually the next day I'll start to lose the voice. And after like two days of demoing or speaking for you know long periods of time, I'll, I'll lose my voice. So usually by the third day, like I'm, my voice will be gone. Oh wow! Okay. So, so I, I think you were that. catching me at a point where, like, I think when I went to BGGCon, it was interesting. Like, I think I lost my voice on the first day. Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I am very thankful that you didn't realize or uh, realize, oh, it's those guys and that you still agreed to come on to the podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> No, no, actually, I, I enjoyed it, even though it was, you know, two hours, 45 minutes or, or so. But it was it was really interesting to, to see the deliberation. And yeah, and to to watch the hunters, you know, really try to analyze every possible move because I always like to see how people approach these games. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's also helpful for me because I need to understand like what is the appropriate playtime I should put on the box. Absolutely. And we actually got to play a four-player game just the other night, mm-hmm. and we had two new players. And I know in the game book it says it's supposed to take about ninety minutes, and we got it out in two hours so Mm -hmm. i think we're doing a little bit better (laughs) we're getting a little faster (laughs) perhaps but one thing i do notice is that with spectrops the more time the hunters spend analyzing the higher the chance that they're going to catch the the agent yeah i think i can definitely see that what was really interesting with our four player game since when you're doing four players you have three hunters but the the agent gets two more hit points and they get five item cards Correct. And yeah. that made, I mean, I just felt like I was, had so many more options and mm-hmm. I felt a little bit braver, I guess, because I was mm-hmm. able to really be pretty sneaky. And mm-hmm. I, I think I got all three, I got three of my missions completed and mm-hmm. I think I'd only taken one hit. So I felt pretty, pretty bold there towards the end because I said I still had five hit points left. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, we were chasing them down and I felt like, you know. I felt no matter what he was going to win because I I just I didn't think we could do enough damage on him to bring him down and then of course 
he ended up tricking us again at the end. So he was pretty tricky this game. It was pretty impressive. Well, I learned a lot of great lessons of what not to do through my first game of Specter Ops. So, because <laughs> I know when I played the first time I played as Blue Jay, and I I love the Hollow Decoy. I think that's one of my favorite cards in the game. Yeah. But I did for some reason I just could not figure out how to use that thing properly in my first game and then afterwards you said you know what i think what you should have done was throw it over the wall and have them think you're going that way i'm like oh, why not think about that so i was able to use it much more effectively in my second game so yeah yeah that hollow decoy is very potent and that's why it's the only character specific equipment that only has one charge yeah it's that potent yeah it really is but i think it's so cool whenever you can pull it pull it off and oh, get yeah. it tricked out so so i i know that with Spectre Ops, it was originally going to be, it was originally named Cypher Ops. Yeah, that's correct. And it, it certainly seemed to be channeling the feel of a board game inspired by the video game and series Metal Gear Solid. Yes. <laughs> was, was that the origin of Spectre Ops, or was there some other initial inspiration for that game? That is a great question. Truthfully, it wasn't a Metal Gear Solid theme. Now, I did have the intention uh, that I want to make a a, ga- a board game about Metal Gear Solid, but that wasn't the, that initially wasn't the one. the The original idea came to me when I was, uh, of all things, I was watching an episode of Cops. Um, it just how I'm not a I'm not a usual follower, but I was just it, it was just happens to be on TV, and I was just walking by, and I saw that it was a chase scene where the police were trying to chase a suspect, and the camera crew, you know, the cameraman was you know, frantically trying to run after them as the police were trying to ca- you know, apprehend uh, the suspect, but the suspect, I mean, did some interesting things. I mean, he had, he jumped over a wall to get into someone's backyard. And then from there, you know, the cops are trying to get in. And then and he was, you know, going through like other people's backyards from that, just jumping fences. And then eventually, you know, he made his way to, um, I think in one instance, he actually went through like an open back door to go through someone's oh open front door. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm assuming this is more of like a, you know, uh, more of like a rural or you know, very suburban area in a, you know, in a, in a nice area where people are a bit trusting to leave their doors open. Uh, but at one point, the you know when the officers made their way from the backyard to the front yard, they were looking in both directions down the street, and they and at one point, it looked like they lost him. And it's only when they, like, they caught um, some noise that they then ran in a particular direction. Uh, but they eventually found, um, I guess he snuck in through like a window or something like that, but he got into another house and was hiding under the mattress in that house. Oh, my gosh. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah, it was... I was actually like, very impressed with how the police officers were able to like deduce where he could be. And so that really sparked that, that interest. And the original game, when I made my first prototype, the game was actually called Wanted. And it was actually a police theme oh. where police were trying to apprehend one person. And the board was more like a residential area where you, know, you had um, <laughs> you know, the, all the blocks were like apartment buildings or houses and things like that. And the vehicle was actually the police car. And that's where the um, the police car can only stay on the road sections because, well, in real life, the police car can only stay on the roads. You can't drive through someone's backyard and, <laughs> and so forth. Highly discouraged, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe in some Hollywood movies, you can do that. Absolutely. So, yeah. And then the the motion sensor in the vehicle for Spectre Ops that was inspired by the the noise. So it was actually an option to like. L- just stop and listen because you know, after after seeing that little clip on 
on TV, it was it was a mechanism I incorporated into the game. That's fascinating. That's that's yeah. incredibly awesome to kind of see <laughs> how the game has kind of evolved. Because I mean, again, I I found that so many people, whenever Spectre Ops was announced, I know mm-hmm. um, even shut up and sit down, kind of jokingly said, you know, Spectre Ops, aka the Metal Gear Solid board game, but couldn't get the license for it. <laughs> I was like, yes. I, I knew there had to be a deeper story behind behind it. So that's great. <laughs> Yeah, and as much as I'm a huge fan of like Metal Gear Solid, Splinter Cell, those stealth action games, I'm I'm a huge fan for it. Uh, but it was only after I brought the prototype to, uh, and this will be a shout out to the the New York Playtest Group. Uh, so it's a it's a group of us designers here in the New York City area that gets together and we critique each other's games. That there's a lot of feedback in terms of hey, you can incorporate these kind of abilities and this type of equipment and things like that. And so it because all those ideas were so compelling and so cool that it kind of morphed into like the Metal Gear Solidish theme that's on it now. That's awesome. Now, even though the backstory kind of changed a bit, and mm-hmm. now it's the Raxon and Global versus Ark, which is really right. cool, very unique characters. But being a fan of the Metal Gear Solid series, I, I can see some potential nods to Metal Gear still within the game. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of my favorite agent characters on the Ark side, his name is uh, Cobra. Yeah, the cyborg ninja? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> His special equipment is the Velocity Blade. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so it's it's definitely got some nods there. Um, one one funny story that I don't think I've I've told is that uh, Colby had approached me and said, "Hey, we we want to get some promo cards for Spectre Ops," and I already had some ideas for it. And there was one idea I was really gunning for for the special promo card, and it was the cardboard box. Oh, that would have been perfect. <laughs> So the cardboard box would just allow you to play this wooden cube on the board. And you don't know if the agent's actually in there or not. But when the agent is in the same location as the as the cardboard box, you can't see it. You just see the cardboard box. Oh, my god! And gosh. you decide to spend your action to shoot at the cardboard box. And if the agent was in it, they would take damage. But you don't know if he's actually in there or not unless, until you go up to it. And then reveal whether the agent's in, actually inside of the cardboard box or not. That is awesome! Oh my gosh, I'm so sad that that didn't actually become a thing. <laughs> it was it was just too wordy. We could not fill that text <laughs> on the card. Oh man, I I hope that comes out in some fashion or another because I that is that is hilarious. That is great. Yeah. But I mean, even thinking about like the prophet kind of reminds me a little bit of Psychomantis to a certain yes. extent. Yes, and stuff like that. So I can definitely see little little nods and things like that. So yeah, the, some of the characters, um, you know, like for instance, uh, the gun. I mean, she has a little bit of resemblance from uh, one of the characters from Metal Gear Solid Two that had the rail gun. Oh yes, yes. Like that. So there's definitely a lot of inspiration uh, you know, intermixed in there. Well, great. I mean, like I said, I. I was really happy that there were still some nice little things. And again, I think for people that are fans of Metal Gear, they can start seeing a little bit of the evolution and all that. So I'm glad you right. were able to still get that Cobra Ninja into the game as well. So that's a great Yeah, one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, Gray Fox is always one of my favorite characters uh, story-wise. Yeah. And, yeah, so when I saw the concept art for it, you know, I was just all over it. That was my favorite character. Yeah, and I, I, I know this is a different game, but some people have compared the spider to Kerrigan from StarCraft. Mm, yes. I didn't know if that was intentional or if it was just, just a cool idea that you guys came up with. Yeah, I'm not sure if that was, was intentional. 
Well, then again, I'm 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 not entirely sure because uh, the character briefs was actually all plat hat. Right, right. The, mm-hmm. Going back to Cypherops, uh, there wasn't any special characters in the in the game, so you actually had a generic spy character and you had generic hunter characters. And the way that uh, Cypherops had handled all the special abilities were you can equip them, so you could load them out with different equipment. Mm-hmm. And those different equipment combinations, then when Platinum took it and, and did the development for it, they became unique characters. So that brought you know, a different sort of life to it. Mm-hmm. And as well as the agent, too, there was only like one spy with a set of equipment in the Cypherops game. And if you if you look at some of the um, the box art that I had, and I have it up on BGG, I mean, it really does look like I just took a still out of Splinter Cell. It's it was very very generic, absolutely in that sense. So about the like the characters and things like that, whether they were like directly influenced by like other uh, you know video games or pop culture. Mm-hmm. The one that you know I'm I think the one that's most overt is is the Cobra character. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple of nods in other areas. Uh, like for instance, like the subtitle of you know Shadows of Babel mm-hmm. and things like that. There are that are kind of nods to to you know the stealth action video game series and things like that. Right. So, but I don't want to ruin all the surprises. No, I completely I like understand. <laughs> I completely understand. It'll give us some more to explore and discover on our own. So right, right, exactly. So I, I know that while Clint couldn't be here, one question that he really wanted to ask you was, what was the hardest thing for you to cut or change whenever you were working on this game? Mm. That's a good, that's a good question. Um, Way to go, Clint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was no. I can I can honestly say there wasn't one significant change um, that really strikes me. Like there wasn't one enormous change that changed, you know, drastically changed it. It was a series of a lot of tweaks throughout the the process. And I think I was fortunate that when I came up with the original design in the first prototype, the the core mechanism hasn't changed from that. So, like the line of sight has has always been just the you know, the or rows and columns and things like that. So, you know, it, I tried to simplify it as as much as possible. Um, initially, I had a little bit of diagonals where it kind of made thematic sense, mm-hmm. but. You know, it's the rules seem to be very tedious and um, open for confusion. So I made the board a little bit more self-enforcing to really enforce just the row and columns or your line of sight, your line of sight ranges. Um, so that was probably one of the more major changes. And then everything else was just tweaks, or probably going from the police theme to the um, you know metal like the futuristic spy theme. That was a big change in terms of the theme. The core gameplay was still the same, though. The core mechanisms were still the same. And then we just slowly introduced different character abilities as as we tested. And then we said, oh, this will be a cool ability. Let's try this. So it was a lot of iterative steps. So it was more, instead of, of like one peak where you know we made some dramatic changes and dramatic process, it's more sort of like a linear uh, graph going up and then plateauing. So it was, it was a lot, you know, there was many steps of just iterative improvements to the design. That's great. That's fantastic. And I, and I like the, I, that you guys can come up with a cool idea, see how it works. If it doesn't work, you can tweak it, throw it out, and just kind of see what how it organically comes comes together. So that's great. Now, I know that we had Valpo Man on Twitter 
wanted me to ask you a question. Uh, he sure. wanted to know if there were any plans for a Spectre Ops app that you're aware of. <laughs> yes, I'm very well aware there is a Spectre Ops app in the works. It's uh, there's some there's been some storyboarding done with it. There's so we have sort of the general idea of how the app is going to work, what the user experience is going to be, and also we have uh, a list of features that we're trying to kind of prioritize as to be, you know, what are the day one features, and then which ones are the, you know, nice to have, but we can save them for like a phase two type of thing, and hopefully I'll within the next couple of days I'll be able to actually start coding on the project itself. Well, that's great. So you're coding it yourself? I am. Oh, that's fantastic. I didn't even realize you, you did that. <laughs> oh, so a little bit of background uh, for me is that in my day job, you know, so when I'm, when I'm not donning a mask and, you know, fighting crimes through board games, <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm a software developer, so I, I write code. I'm, a, I guess, affectionately known as a code monkey. Nice. Or code junkie. <laughs> Which do you prefer? <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine with either. That's fantastic. So that's really exciting. And I know with Vault, you did some of you did the art yourself. Is that right? Oh yes, that's right. Now, now I put. I'll, I'll say I did the art, and I'll put the art in quotes uh, because. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when it when it comes to like if if you gave me a pencil and a pad or you gave me oil paints, I probably wouldn't do very well. But because most of the art that I do is actually just three D modeling, so it for I guess like a good ten or so years I've been just a hot we call it a hobbyist, like someone who likes doing three D modeling but doesn't get paid to do it because okay. they just. Yeah. doing it. So for the most part my you know because I've been doing it a while I feel very comfortable you know doing 3D modeling and all of Vault was actually all the art was actually just 3D modeling and Photoshop. So there was nothing hand drawn in there at all. But yeah, the the art is just it's something that I really enjoy doing so yeah. So is the the idea of the app that you'd be able to use the app to keep track of your movements as the agent? Is that something that you're looking for in this, or is it kind of have a different intent? Oh, actually, you you hit the nail on the head. It is a replacement for the movement sheet, so you don't need to use the sheet of paper. You can now just use the app. That's the intention of it, so that the agent will be the one that's holding the you know the tablet or the phone and will be tracking his movements through the app. That's really exciting. I'm really excited to see how this comes together because I think that's yeah. really cool. Yeah. I think it's nice to be able to write things on the, the pen and paper, but again, I think that app would actually even be able to streamline it even more. So that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that, one of the big benefits of having it is that it's also, it'll also help you enforce the rules as well. One of the things I'm always worried about, especially with like hidden hidden information games or hidden movement games, is that if the agent makes a mistake, it can have, you know, it could change like the entire game. <laughs> yeah, that happened the other night as well. <laughs> There was a, a hunter that was not quite on the road. Mm-hmm. I think he was on the O lane, but he was just, he was not quite on the road. So mm-hmm. I was actually took a gutsy move and I had my agent that was trying to run across the road, but didn't quite make it around the corridor. And so he asked if he could see me and I could have sworn that he was on the road. And I said, yes, you can. And mm. nope. So that kind of, frustrated me a little bit because that rev- that was the first time I'd, I had actually been spotted the entire game and I uh, revealed it accidentally <laughs> and yet he still crushed us <laughs> <laughs> again I credit that to Emerson giving me tips on how to play blue chain properly so <laughs> yeah it's one of those games that uh, if you've when you when you have experience with the game it does uh, I feel like it it amplifies your advantage in the game when you know more 
about it. So I know, I, I guess that's true for a lot of games, but I feel like in spec drops, if one side has more experience than the other, it, it, it does feel like the advantage is overwhelmingly tilted in one direction or the other based on you know, the player's skill levels and things like that. Yeah. But that could just be my, my own biases and, and just the way I'm perceiving the results of the playtest and things like that. Yeah, and I haven't got to play as a hunter yet. I tried to convince Jonathan to be the agent, but mm-hmm. he's too concerned about his... I have super AP, so <laughs> I, di- I didn't want to make the game last too long. So I didn't want to do it to him again. But I, the, the thing that came to my mind, Emerson, is I know you talked about you know forming your own company, experiencing developing games, and, and all sides of it. What was it like, the decision to partner up with, with Colby? Because I know Colby loved um, Volt. He talked about it you know, highly. And uh, what was the decision to, to partner up with him and, and do this with both you and Plat Hat? Mm, the decision was almost instantaneous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when he offered me the opportunity to work with Plat Hat, you know, he wanted to take Cypherops and turn it into Spectrops, a much more you know, bigger production with miniature. I mean, I th- I think as soon as he said miniatures, I think he had me at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, he he told me, he presented me an offer. Uh, he told me to think about it, you know, take my time. Uh, he knows it's a, it's a big decision. But I think I went back to him and I immediately said, yes, you know, I can't see any downsides of like, you know, working with Plaid Hat. And, the, and since I've gone through the experience of working with them, I mean, they've been an absolutely fantastic company to work with. So I really enjoyed the entire process working with their, you know, their staff and seeing the updates, like the concept art to, to the to final art to um, the miniatures. Got to see Chad sculpt those miniatures and, you know, I was, I was blown away. So it was very exciting. And the whole process was just, you know, it was just an awesome thing to see the, the the evolution of the game you know change from what it was which was going to be a much smaller production with smaller board um, just some wooden tokens uh and so forth into what it is now and it's a beautiful game yeah and that's the thing with plat hat is their production values are just off the charts so yeah, um, yeah and i'll have to give a shout out to uh, steve hamilton too because the, the art that he uh, produces is fantastic I, I love looking at those character cards he's put a lot of details into them and they're very evocative of of those characters yeah absolutely and and just not to retread too much but i know that in cypher ops there Mm -hmm. was also these supply trucks that were on the board that you could actually move up to and search through and get supplies Mm -hmm. what was was there a decision to remove those in particular or just kind of the different direction that the game was taking or uh, I think a little bit of both because it changed from a military base where Cypher Ops took place where it thematically made sense that you'd have supply trucks, you'd be able to get some med kits and things like that into you're now um, infiltrating a, mat, a Raxon research facility. Mm-hmm. So I think part of it was a shift to a different a different theme. Also, there was just uh, some they were just looking for some ways to kind of streamline it to oh, not sure. to make it too, too rules heavy. Um, so that people can get up and running and going without the additional roles. And it's always something that we can add on later, either as, you know, perhaps we can have tokens on the board to represent like certain areas where you could pick up equipment. But by do, doing so, you let the hunters know that you've picked up equipment from one of these repositories kind of thing. So it might be something we might add later on. But it was, it was, there was a couple of reasons for removing the, the supply trucks. Well, I had a few more questions for you, Emerson. Uh, sure. I know that you may not be able to talk about 
all of these things. I know there's a card game set in Specter Ops world. Oh, yes. Cross- Crossfire? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, there is a card game. Um, I'm not sure how much of it I can talk about, but it is something that uh, is currently set in the Spectre Ops universe, and it is a, um, it's a, it's a micro game, so there's only about 15 cards in the entire game. Oh, wow. Okay. So kind of going <laughs> with the love letter approach. Yeah. Yeah. It is, um, because we wanted to keep sort of that spy theme, it's a hit and roll game. I think I, I think I can mention that. Okay. I don't, we don't want to get <laughs> yeah, you in we, trouble. We don't want to get you in trouble. No. <laughs> not at all. I just I know that Tom Vassell he just re- was bringing in a bunch of designers in, kind of talking them on camera and letting people ask questions. And then he had Rob Davio on there. He was saying that he just is so envious of people who can design those micro games because he just wants to throw so much into it. So right, uh, right. it's got to be a very di- uh, so. Are you the one designing the Crossfire game? Yes. Yes. Okay, so that's the, great. That was, yeah, that was one of my designs that I had shown um, Colby back at Origins of last year. Okay. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing it. Jonathan tried to get in on the play test, but that those spots <laughs> went filled fast. Up fast. <laughs> it filled up very fast. Uh, also, I've I've heard you know on the Plata Hat podcast, Colby's talked about a Euro game that you've been working on that he really really liked. Uh, is that something you can talk about or? Uh, yes. So I can I can mention that it is a Euro game, which I was I was very very surprised that Colby took an interest in it because it is such a departure from like those awesome thematic, cinematic, immersive experiences that they have in their other games. Whereas, you know, this Euro game is when I describe it to people, I I do tell them up front that it is you know, almost by definition it's a cube pusher. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. I, I, yeah. I like my fair share of pushing cubes around the board. So yeah, I do. I do too. I enjoy. I enjoy a good uh, Euro game. I'm terrible at them. Um, Sounds like Jonathan. I, yep, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> it takes like a really good mathematical mind to be able to like really excel at those type of games. At least I feel that way. But that's a fair assessment, I guess. Yeah. And I'm I'm getting to the point where I'm almost mathematically challenged. I rely on my on the computer to do every simple calculation <laughs> for me. Yeah. So if someone says, you know, what's thirteen plus twelve? I have to like open up my start menu, go to my calculator, and I have to punch <laughs> it in. I can completely feel your pain there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. I'm personally I was really blown away with Spectre Ops when I first got to to try it at board game geek convention and thank you i'm really really happy to hear that and after after the game even though like i said it was just because jonathan and matt put me through the ringer with that game they were like (laughs) oh i don't know if i can do this again i'm like nope i'm gonna get this game as soon as it comes out and so i yeah i pre-ordered it and i was very thankful i was able to redeem myself in my second game so thank you so much for making it Excellent. I'm so happy to hear that. So go agents. So are there any other future projects that you're working on besides the ones we've already talked about? Um, I think I can probably mention one other one because I know it's been it's been tweeted, I believe Suzanne from the Dice Tower. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That that covers the app segments has has had um had the breaking news on this is that uh NASCA Games is also working on the Crossroads app. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, I forgot oh. about that. So right now we're just trying to get the um the app tested on multiple devices, 
and just working on just you know polishing it up and then hopefully we'll have that out soon but we we still do have like a stage of like beta testing that we need to go through and and so forth so i don't have an exact date oh sure and release it and you know obviously plat hat will have to approve of the of the code and everything like that to make sure that you know, it it lives up to their specifications and their expectations fantastic well i look forward to seeing all this stuff <laughs> yep, and as well as the Spectre Ops app, I you know um, it's something that is in the works, and I'm hoping that you know as as we are able to you know get a functioning app out there, we can we can also like tweet out pictures and get people excited about about it during the development process as well. Get some feedback in as well as to what people would like to see in the app. Fantastic. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and transition over to our final segment of the show, which is the punch list. The punch list, yes. Warned you about this, okay? Yes, so, I'm excited. <laughs> so uh, Jonathan has prepared a category or some classification of a board game, mm-hmm. and we have to follow those guidelines and choose a game that we believe is punch-worthy. So neither one of us have heard what this is going to be, only Jonathan knows, and okay. usually we have the person who presents it go first. So let's see what Jonathan has for us. All right, gentlemen, the punch list for tonight is your favorite game that is based on an intellectual property. And I will go ahead and go first. Uh, you guys have heard me on the podcast talk about the Lord of the Rings LCG. That's probably my favorite. That's not what I'm going to talk about. Imperial, Se- <laughs> I'm sorry, Imperial Assault, the Star Wars game. Slightly different there. <laughs> uh, w- would be my pick for this. I've had a lot of fun playing that with my boys. We've run through a big chunk of the campaign. We haven't finished it, but... It's, it's had lots of exciting moments. It went from me as the uh, Empire feeling overwhelmed by that rebel scum and uh, to moments where it comes down to the last die roll. You know, it's going to go one way or the other to me finally getting my vengeance and kind of crushing them a little bit with some uh, well-timed explosive probe droids. Have you got to play Imperial Assault, Emerson? No, no, not yet. It's I've only got to play one game of it. Jonathan's kind of been hoarding it over on in his house, I guess, but it is a really great game if you like that sort of, kind of that dungeon crawl sort of feel, but within the Star Wars universe, it's it's a really cool game. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of Descent. Um, you know, I really, really enjoy that game, so I'm, I'm sure I'm going to enjoy Imperial Assault as well. <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to add with that, Jonathan? No, that's it. Oh, well, that was pretty short. Okay. <laughs> so I'm the first game that popped in my head when I was thinking about an intellectual property that I feel like makes a really great board game. I'm, I know. I'm going to keep going with Plaid Hat, but I love Plaid Hat, is the Bioshock board game. Oh, yeah. I, oh, really, like, <laughs> I, I really like Isaac's design on that. I'm a big Bioshock fan. And when I heard that Irrational Games had partnered up with Plaid Hat to have them make the Bioshock game I was instantly sold because I just know the quality of Plaid Hat games and I knew they would do a great job with it. So that's one of those games. Again, it falls kind of within that category of while it can be played with four players, I really feel like it excels with two. And again, it's one of those games I wish I could get out more often, but as a two-player game, it's just a little tough. But I really feel like it takes that environment of Bioshock Infinite, but really tells a different story because it's not trying to emulate the story within the video game because you're actually playing the opposing factions. And the, the good guys that you play as in the video game, they're the ones that are in the pain in the neck for you as you're playing the game. But I really feel like it really captures the feeling of writing the the rails across the floating city of Columbia and using the different vigors and upgrading your units. It's just a really great, great kind of dudes on a map 
game. I really love that uh, idea of upgrading your units. That was one of the neatest things I thought about that game. So I think that would be my my choice. I'm just a huge Bioshock fan, and I think Isaac really nailed it. And I'm again, I don't know how how well that game has sold, but I just feel like it hasn't got as much as exposure or buy-in as it deserves, because I really think it's a very solid game. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And that was actually going to be, that's the game that popped into my head was Bioshock Infinite. Oh no, it was the first time we've actually <laughs> stolen something. <laughs> but no, don't worry, I have I have other ones as well. I'm not going to list the gamut of the Star Wars themed games, because there's just so many of them, and they're all really good from Fantasy Flight. Uh, then there was going to be Bioshock. And then the other one that came to my mind was Battlestar Galactica, because I'm just such a big sucker for that traitor mechanism. Oh, absolutely. And unfortunately, I have never, I, this is horrible, I've never played Battlestar Galactica. I've got to admit, I haven't either. <laughs> We just lost some credit on this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can I can say that Dead of Winter has sort of replaced it for me, though. Really? So, yeah. It's I feel like Dead of Winter it it does some things better, and it's also kind of condenses the time frame as well, so it's not as long. And I feel like in Dead of Winter there's more. I mean, the thing that I really like is that everyone has their own secret objective. Oh yeah, yeah. And I know I'm turning this into a conversation about Data Winter, but uh, <laughs> start, okay. I really enjoy Battlestar Galactica. I, you know, if someone wants to bring it out, I'm all for for playing that as well. And I can keep going in terms of I, IPs because uh, all the comic book themes ones, like Marvel Legendaries, you know, it's fantastic. Dice Masters. You know what other ones? Uh, there was the Dune, the board game. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's it's fairly old. It is. It is. So I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that if that counts, or if any of like the Cthulhu themed board games count too, because it's a uh, you know it's I guess it's public domain. But I think that's fair. I think you're right. I think I could count within the category. So. So, but if I had to to pick one of those, I yeah, it's it's tough between Legendary and Battlestar Galactica. But I think I might give the edge to Battlestar Galactica. It's it's got really cool trader mechanisms, and it's one of those games that if you discovered, you're not like out of the game or get exiled or anything like that you're still in the game but now you can actively you know unrestrictedly you know then just go after the other players you know it's it's very cool very cool again i I know you don't have to be a fan of battlestar galactica to get into the game but again i just don't know if anybody that we does clint own that clint might have it i'll have to double check with him we might have to try that one yeah i'll have to bust it out because i do like that kind of hidden role trader mechanism in games so but again i think that what Dead of Winter does just is amazing, and I really haven't found a game that does it quite as well as what it is able to pull off. Right, right. And I suspect that if, you, if you've played Dead of Winter that you'll enjoy Battlestar Galactica, but I think you may say that, hey, I think I like Dead of Winter a little bit better because it's got some more interesting things in there. Great, it's it's yeah. my, my hunch, my well, hunch, but it's still a great game, though. Yeah, I don't feel like anything can really edge out Dead of Winter in that category for me, but I'll, I'm definitely willing to give Battlestar Galactica a try. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth a play, at the very least. Fantastic. Well, I think that brings the conclusion of episode number six of the Punched and Played podcast. So I'd like to thank our special guest, Emerson, for joining us tonight. Thanks. Well, thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. great. So just remember, you can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. You can also go to our website at punchedandplayed.com. And just remember, if you're going to punch them, make sure you play them. (laughs) 